Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. Shiloh Brooks from the University of Colorado in Boulder. And I'm Jeff Black from St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. We are on book six of the Anabasis of Cyrus by Xenophon. Um, and Jeff is going to start us off with an overview and an opening question. He's doing double duty today. So over to you, Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, I was elected leader for this particular podcast. I'm not quite sure why. I, maybe I should have given a speech. We'll see. Uh, here comes a speech anyways. Uh, book six is different um, from the previous books, at least from books two through five. Um, something that strikes me is that all those other books that were subsequent to an earlier book began with a little summary of what happened in the previous book. And this one doesn't. There's no paragraph like that. Um, and so it looks to me like this book might be a continuation of the themes of the previous book. Um, but then why not just be part of um, book five? Um, so maybe a continuation with a difference. And I'm interested in, in kind of looking into that possibility and figuring out how it might be like the previous book and how it might be uh, different from it. But uh, we start off with uh, a story about a party that is held as a kind of diplomatic negotiation with the local um, barbarians. And there's a, a variety of kinds of dancing that are put on and the dancing is meant to impress and meant to produce good relations with the locals because the Greeks as usual, they need provisions and they can get provisions as gifts. They can get provisions in a market they can buy them fairly or they can plunder. And so this is um, a persistent question um, going forward with the 10,000. How are they gonna support themselves as they move through the territory that they're in? Um, and unfortunately, it's a question that the army is divided over. The army is now composed of two clear sections, a section that wants to buy their provisions and wants to stay in, and a section that wants to go out and take their provisions. And this division first leads the army to ask Xenophon to rule them. Uh, and Xenophon says no. Um, then it leads the army to divide into three parts. And having divided into three parts, Xenophon ends up the ruler of one of them, a relatively small part, the only part with um, all three kinds of troops, hoplites, peltasts, and cavalry. And that division turns out to be disastrous. Uh, it turns uh, out that the leadership goes to um, Chirosophus, who has returned from an unsuccessful expedition to get them ships. Uh, he is only able to lead for six days or seven days. Uh, so it looks like it's very hard to lead a divided um, Greek army. And finally, it turns out that one of these factions um, engages in a disastrous raid. Um, a number of them are killed and the army seems paralyzed. They find themselves in a highly defensible location, a place that would be really nice to set up a city, um, but they don't want to stay there and they need to wait for um, favorable sacrifices in order to get out. So um, I guess I wanted to ask this. Um, it does seem to me that there's some continuation of the theme of the previous book, which theme was probably justice, um, the internal conflicts of the army and how they're resolved. Uh, but we also get this very striking moment and Shiloh, I know that these are the moments that uh, make your heart swell, mm -hmm. um, where the army asks Xenophon 
to rule them, uh, to be their sole ruler, their monarch, uh, to be their king. And Xenophon says no. Do we know why he says no? Man, that's a good question. <laughs> and not only does he say no, uh, um, he then, then they say, come on. <laughs> and he says, oh, no, no, no. I even consulted the sacrifices. Um, I don't know if you guys want to start there, though, but I guess that is in chapter one. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's interesting about that is that he says no, but he also, he seems, does he seem to you all a little tempted? Because he says, this is at uh, chapter, book six, chapter one, parenthetical 20. In some ways, Xenophon wished for this to be ruler, for he believed that in this way, he would obtain great, uh, greater honor for himself in the eyes of his friends. His own name would be greater when it should arrive in the city. And perchance he could become the cause of some good to the army. Now, such consideration stirred him to desire to become ruler with sole command. But when, on the other hand, he reflected that it was unclear to every human being how the future would go. And because of this, there was the danger of throwing away even the reputation he had already earned. He was at a loss. Since he was at a loss on how to decide, it seemed best to take common counsel with the gods. So... I mean, I don't know. Do you, uh, do you th guys think it's, he's sincere that, boy, I desire this. This would actually be really great um, because this, uh, this leads to a kind of George Washington moment where he's, mm -hmm. you know, no, no, no. But unlike George Washington and unlike Caesar who pushed the crown back, Xenophon actually pushes the crown back. And then the odd thing is then he goes on to lead everyone. You see what I mean? So even though he's not sole ruler and it appears as though, okay, he's been demoted, lo and behold, he's got to come and save the day again in the book. Mm -hmm. And so I don't know what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Part of his rationale that he lays out in, in 25 is that the Lycodemonians rule in Greece. And so he thinks that him ruling being not a Lycodemonian would potentially cause some friction there. And especially because I think that half of the troops, right, are uh, Achaeans or Arcanians, Arcadians, mm -hmm. which uh, are Lacedaemonians. And so there's, there's a practical aspect there of 50% of the troops are not going to like a non-Lacedaemonian in charge. But I also wonder if there's something going on here in terms of the system that they had before this was that there were I think 10 generals and that they would vote to see what they would do next. And this seems like a very Athenian approach to ruling an army, right? But now they want to shift to this more Lacedaemonian Spartan approach of having one king in charge of the army. And we kind of see that even though things didn't go super great in the last book, the army stayed together and they mostly survived. But now by putting one person in charge, it actually splits the army into three. So I'm wondering if there's some kind of, I don't know, subtext going on in terms of how like self-organization works, how organization works, the idea of democracy versus monarchy. Um, do, you, do we feel like Xenophon's just kind of, you know, sprinkling a little bit of that into this book? I do think he's considering themes like that. And also he's considering the, um, 
separation or difference that there might be between the good of the ruler and the good of the ruled. Um, I'm just struck that in that passage that Shiloh um, read to us, uh, starting at um, book six, chapter one, paragraph 20, um, I think all three, well, the first two, at least, of the three things that he mentions um, are benefits for himself. And the third thing is uh, some greater good for the army, which presumably he would share in. Um, as, as leader of the army, um, it's that third thing that has a perchance to it. Uh, so it looks like maybe that third thing is less likely, um, that his initial thought is that, well, this will be likely good for me and maybe also good for everybody. Um, when the army got into it, the reason they're interested uh, is said a couple um, uh, sentences earlier at 18, uh, they held then that if they should choose one ruler, this one more than with the rule of several would be able to use the army both night and day. If there were a need to escape detection in something, he would keep things more hidden. And if there were a need to get the jump on another, he would be late less often. For they held there would be no need of words back and forth, but the, what the one decided would be executed. Whereas previously the generals had done everything by majority vote, like you said, Brian. Yeah, so there's some kind of reflection here on having a unitary executive, if I can put it that way, and the appeal of that for the army. Um, you'll get more stuff if you have a unitary executive. It's good for acquisition, they think. So immediately, I guess we see Xenophon's um, interest in the position and the army's interest in Xenophon having the position do not coincide perfectly. Yeah, this is interesting to me because I can see the army's interest in getting the position and I can see Xenophon's interest in having a great name and being more famous and all that. But what it sounds like, Jeff, is that what what the way you put it, um, this would be required. Xenophon sees his self-interest, a greater self-interest in not being sole ruler. You see what I mean? In other words, mm -hmm. there's something he it's not he's not doing he's not doing it. Let me say, he's not turning them down because he thinks it'll be better for them if he's not the sole ruler. I don't yeah. think. I think he's turning them down because he's got, I mean, he says here, I think we have to take our orientation from the line where he says, um, on the other hand, he reflected that it was unclear to every human being how the future would go. There's something in the future. There's something that he's thinking about tomorrow or 10 years from now or whatever the case may be. And that thing is what's motivating him. And one of the things that occurs to me is that it's not a great look for Xenophon to be a student of Socrates, to return to Greece with an, uh, at the head of an army of a bunch of Spartans. Like that's just not a great look, <laughs> you know what I mean? For him, you know, he's already gonna be in hot water for going with Cyrus in the first place. Um, he's already gonna be in hot water for being a student of the teacher who is, is uh, soon to be put to death. And so it seems to me that for Xenophon, there is something in his future, namely, I mean, dare I say, to live and philosophize that he has in mind by saying to the political life, you know what, not for me, even though, and this is what's so impressive to me, and it's very different from Cyrus, even though I'm a success, they think I would be a success. I'm pretty sure I'd be a success too. There's something more um, enticing, appealing, choice worthy to me than this. And I don't know how the future will go were I to choose this uh, rule. Whereas I can at least speculate that things would be less bad 
if I didn't show up with an army back home. Mm-hmm. Um, so that occurs to me as perhaps something that's going on in there. And it's of, of interest to me at this point, he believe, he brings up the dream he saw from Zeus when he began to establish himself as one who would join in taking charge of the army. This is at the top of the Ambler, page 182. And that was when the lightning struck the house and it was on fire. And we interpreted that, he interpreted that at the time to mean, um, you know, I got, we, we got to get up and do something. Yeah. But we speculated at the time, doesn't this also mean the house of your father could be destroyed by your actions? And so I wonder if that interpretation is not coming out here. I could be this, I could be engaging in some sort of self-destruction were I to do this. Mm-hmm. I mean, we saw, we saw Xenophon using sacrifices, omens, and dreams a lot in the last book. And here he uses sacrifices again, but I guess, is he trying to manipulate the situation? Is, is what happened kind of what he predicted would happen by turning down the role? And is he trying to, I don't know, ride the wave of kind of the zeitgeist within the army um, to achieve his ends, which seem to be getting back. Yeah. Right. The other factions don't seem as concerned with getting back to Greece. And so I wonder how much, you know, we had this kind of Machiavelli in the previous book and that isn't, or is that, or isn't it what's going on here? Do we feel like he's being a Machiavelli and just saying like, well, I'm not going to win. I'm not gonna be able to convince everybody to, if I'm in charge to do what I you know, think we should do. So I'm just going to turn the gig down, let them kind of hash it out themselves, see that failure is going to result from this and then swoop in and save the day uh, to convince them that, hey, we need to get out of here. Yeah, because what's so magical about that, Brian, is that he continues to be sole ruler. <laughs> he, he, he doesn't, he just, he's ruler without the name. Um, Tyrosophus dies there's a total catastrophe and he's having to save the day. And so it's like, he gets, he does the deed without the name and it's the name that he doesn't want. It's the reputation that he doesn't want. It's the reputation that tempts him, but he says, all right, well, I've still got to do the work, but I have to avoid the reputation. I have to avoid the, you know, the things that, that tempt my, uh, you know, my more political side, but I, I can't just drop out completely because if they don't have me, we're never going to get home. How would we how would we compare this to the education of Cyrus? How do we now that we've known a little bit about Xenophon and we did the education of Cyrus before this? How is there is there a compare and contrast that kind of jumps to you all's mind in terms of how Cyrus would be handling this versus the Cyrus of the last book or this book and how Xenophon is handling it? Well, what occurs to me about the education is the scene in book seven with Croesus, where Croesus says to Cyrus. Cyrus, boy, you, I did not know myself and you came in here and wiped the floor with me. And now you've made me like your wife insofar as all I got to do is enjoy all the good things and I can hang out and the, the Oracle and all this. And I just thank you so much. And Cyrus is amazed to hear this. And I feel like Xenophon is tending in the, not exactly like Croesus, because I think Xenophon's much more competent, but he's looking at the political life and saying, you know what? I'm on the brink and, um, and it's not for me. And I don't need Croesus or the Oracle to tell me that. Uh, whereas Cyrus, the man from the education of Cyrus, 
I mean, this is it. This is opportunity. Of course, he wants to be loved by the entire world. Of course, he wants everyone to say his name. Of course, he wants everyone to worship him and make him into a god. Xenophon here resists that kind of deification. And so that is a moment in that book that I think is um, crucial for seeing or comparing to this particular moment. Jeff, I don't know if you have any thoughts on any of this. I I think I agree with that. Um, The one thing that gives me some pause is right at the end of the education of Cyrus, we get the picture of the um, Persian Empire at at its full extent. And there does seem to be some um, kind of invisible rule that's exercised there. So people who never see the king uh, nonetheless do his bidding, we're told, uh, in Persia. Um, And that that seems to bear some comparison with what Xenophon is able to carry out as the de facto but not de jure ruler. Um, It looks like uh, the exercise of power um, is comparable between the two of them, but being seen to be the one exercising the power is much more important to Cyrus with his um, makeup and his high heels, right? And all the various things he does to um, seem to merit uh, his superiority to others. And Xenophon doesn't look like he's as attached to uh, that appearance of superiority. Yeah. Um, he wants the de facto superiority because he needs to get some things done for himself and, and also, if possible, for the whole army. Um, yeah. But he doesn't need to, to look the look. Um, yeah. yeah. I think that's important. And I think what you say is right and it makes a lot of sense. My only addition would be that Xenophon is concerned with leisure in the future. That's where the Croesus part comes in. You're right that right now he needs to rule and not be seen to rule. What he doesn't want to do is have to rule and not be seen to rule once he gets back. He wants to be done, (laughs) I think, Mm -hmm. with with leadership in a certain way. Is my suspicion, I mean, given what he goes on to do in all these beautiful books we're talking about on the Combat and Classic podcast. So I think that he's he's not he's thinking both of now, but he's also thinking of of his potential future. You know what I mean? And that's mm-hmm. why I think he has a, he puts a premium on leisure um, in a way that Cyrus the man doesn't, in addition to what Jeff says, he also does not want to be seen as the ruler, mm-hmm. even though he's doing what Cyrus does. Would you say, Jeff, that he's one-upping Cyrus here? In other words, he's managing to do on a much smaller scale. Um, what Cyrus does, in, in other words, rule while not being seen as the ruler, um, rule masterfully while not you know by by people who are with him yet he's not subject to the same uh you know psychological hang-ups that cyrus is mm-hmm. so he kind of one-ups his own guy in, mm-hmm. in some ways his own creation what do you, what do you all make oh, oh i was just gonna ask what do you all make of in in chapter two um we we get this list of kind of heroes that they pass by or like monuments to heroes we get the uh they sailed along they observed cape jason where the argo is said to have come to anchor um and then they after sailing past this one they arrive at heraclea a, a greek city a colony of colony of the megarians the land of Mirandinians. they anchored beside the architect Acherusian Chersonese, where Heracles is said to have descended from the dog Cerebus. So it's kind of these weird shout outs of kind of heroic or heroes and not really where they did much, but just kind of where they hung out a little while. Is this to kind of build this kind of 
temptation of Xenophon becoming a hero or something like that? Is that what, you know, Xenophon's kind of dangling here? Yeah, I, I think yes. Um, and not just to build the temptation, but to give a kind of um, indication of why the temptation is resisted. Uh, the things I'd point out are uh, the labor of Her Heracles, where he goes down and, and gets Kerberos, he has to go down into the underworld, right? It looks like the opposite of the anabasis or the ascent. Um, so the labor requires him somehow to um, go among the dead or to struggle with a monster. Um, and the other, the other um, piece of this, I guess, is uh, the story of Jason and the Argonauts. Well, Heracles was one of the Argonauts for a while until the Argonauts told him that he had to get off the boat because he was too heavy, uh, which I think is supposed to mean that he outweighs everybody else there. He's not really proportionate to them. So he can't be part of the band. Uh, he's just too good too much of a demigod, too much of a hero. So I think there's some suggestion that is what is being asked of Xenophon at this moment is to go down from the position that he's in um, and wrestle with monsters. And that he um, fears that if he does this, he'll be uh, abandoned, uh, that he will be um, excluded from the political community because uh, he's too heavy. Um, maybe he'll be the subject of envy. Um, and so this is something he doesn't need. Uh, he's not interested in the labors that it would require. I take it that something like that is built into these uh, references to well-known myths. So what kind of ascent is, the, is this for Xenophon? Like, I don't, under, I don't fully understand. I mean, he, he gets to the top of what? Political life? He, he is, they, they've asked him to be sole ruler. And he turns it down, but he's by turning it down, he's not going down. I mean, you see what I mean? He's continuing on an upward trajectory. It's almost like he's shattering the ceiling of political life and ascending to a certain, I don't know. I mean, uh, this is why I keep coming back to Xenophon as philosopher, that, that this temptation, he's, he's forged by a fire here. It's not the ascent. The ascent that we're supposed to notice is not the ascent to sole ruler, to, mm -hmm. the, to the Cyrus the Great of the education of Cyrus. It's the ascent to some understanding of the failings or the problems of that life. And that's mm -hmm. why I, I told you guys last time when we were reading book five, I was so interested to think about what Xenophon must want the writer to think when he drops in the, you know, he's been exiled. And, you know, these sorts of things that he's sort of giving you a taste of his life, of his future. And here he's referring to the future. And I wonder if the ascent is not an ascent up and past politics, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I do think it's, a, it's an ascent up and past the political opportunity that's offering itself to him right now. Um, the thing I'm puzzled about that I don't see as clearly as I'd like is whether... Um, he, that simply means that he's ascended past all political possibilities or this road not taken that we talked about last time of being a founder of a city is still a higher possibility. Uh, it looks like it's not going to be possible for him, but it's uh, one aspect of the political life that he hasn't clearly ascended above. And let me just um, point out a couple of things, one of which I think cuts one way and one of which cuts the other. Um, the thing that cuts in the direction of saying that um, his refusal is circumstantial is the um, 
signs that the army doesn't really want what they say they want. They don't want a sole ruler. Uh, not only is Chirosophus ineffective for those brief few days when he is the sole ruler, but the army keeps on behaving as if there were a plurality of generals. So they're ungovernable. And maybe that's something that dissuaded Xenophon. So he'd say, I'd love to be sole ruler, but not of these guys. These guys are um, damaged, they're corrupted. So that's one possibility. And that to me suggests that there might be political heights that he would still be interested in, but are, aren't available to him and he hasn't ruled them out. Um, the other direction, the thing that cuts in the other direction is um, back on 182 where, where Shiloh stopped uh, reading where we get a second omen that he got from Zeus that he hadn't mentioned before. Uh, book six, chapter two, uh, parenthetical 23 and following, he says, this is Xenophon talking about himself. And when he was setting out from Ephesus in order to be introduced to Cyrus, he remembered an eagle screeching on his right, one that was perched, however. The soothsayer who was escorting him said that this was a great omen, not one for a private person, but one portending high repute. And yet it was also one portending toil and trouble. For birds, he said, attack the eagle, especially when it is perched. And certainly the omen did not portend gain, for he said, it is rather the eagle in flight that gets provisions. So then when he made sacrifice, the God indicated very clearly that he should neither ask for the rule nor accept it if they elected him. This is how it all turned out. So this um, experience apparently colored Xenophon's interpretation then of the sacrifices that he performed on this question of whether he should accept the the monarchy. Um, and I, I just don't know how to interpret this omen. Uh, a great omen, not one for a private person, portending high repute, but not in gain. Does that somehow point towards a, a, a private life or a life only public through writing? Um, but I think there might be another path that's indicated there that might be what Xenophon has in mind. Yeah, and I don't think that's incompatible with some of the things that I've I've seen. I, I like very much your interpretation of that. I do want to go back to something just for as a point of clarification, Jeff. You think that Xenophon is still tempted to be a founder. You I think that that's he has not transcended that because I was arguing in book five that much of that could be um, could be a. Uh, piece of utility for him. It's useful to appear at that particular time as though he might found a city and then to pull it back. He does it again today. It's very brief in chapter six of book six, um, parenthetical four, um, hearing that he was founding a city in this place, even the enemies who dwelt nearby now sent to Xenophon, asking what they had to do to become friends. And he would show them to the soldiers. And it just, and it's, it's, it just, that's it. That's all that's said. But he doesn't deny that he wants to found, you know, he's not like, oh, no, no, I'm not founding a city. On the other hand, I think it's useful for those nearby to think Xenophon wants to found a city again at this mm -hmm. particular moment. And so that's why I'm, as I look at the man and, and the, whatever this book is supposed to teach about the political life in contradistinction to the education of Cyrus, um, I'm not wholly persuaded he genuinely does want to found a city the way that, that you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
And that seems crucial to me because we're trying to say, who is Xenophon? What is he thinking at the moment he turns down the opportunity to be so ruler? And you've pointed out where there are practical reasons not to do it, right. um, you know, in addition to whatever we might interpret about what it means about the philosophic life. Mm-hmm. And I'm just trying to understand the depth of his, of his thinking. Yeah, I think I agree that this is the, the crucial question, A or the crucial question of the book, right? What is the, you know, crudely, the uh, contemplative life and the practical life, the philosophic life and the active life, how do they rank um, one against the other? Uh, to what extent are they incompatible? Um, it does seem to me, tell me uh, whether you'd agree with this, Shiloh and Brian, that um, in book five, when we get that description of the kind of place that Xenophon is able to set up back near Sparta, uh, it, it focuses on its um, political character. It's a small community, it has a temple, there are festivals, there's hunting, uh, people can come together. Um, that seems not to have been incompatible for Xenophon with writing uh, the books that he wrote. Um, and so it wasn't incompatible with some pursuit and maybe, you know, as much pursuit as, as a human being could uh, hope for of the philosophic life. So what we'd want to say is then um, we, he would only have to reject founding if it required uh, much more uh, commitment to the place founded than founding this um, personal uh, uh, preserve, you know, this, this thing he sets up, um, for his retirement. Uh, now that, that might be right. You might just be exposing yourself to the envy of others as a founder, and there might never be any leisure. Um, it's just not entirely clear to me that that's, that that's right. I think it's true under the circumstances he's facing. It might be right. I'm just, but I wouldn't call that thing a polis, Mm, you know, that, that thing, that's an academy or something. That's Mm -hmm. a, a salon, you know, it's, which is, you know, what Socrates found, <laughs> you know, it's a city inside of a city is what it is. Yeah. And, uh, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm on board with you that far and that his ambitions may have been, shall we say, uh, uh, directed to found a city in speech or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't know a city and I mean, it's not quite, but you know what I, what I have in mind. Yeah. Associate but, Dean. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. But this, this, um, this whole conversation, you know, I'm sitting here, my book's closed and I'm staring at the title of the book. I mean, it makes me then reflect on the title because I feel like the Anabasis of Cyrus, that Cyrus is not the Cyrus in this book. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I, I almost feel like this book is, ref- the title refers to the other Cyrus. I mean, his ascent and my ascent and what he did on, on his and what I've, what I've done on mine and why I ascended to the place he got to and turn down what it was he wanted. And mm-hmm. so it's, it's almost like this book is a interpretation or a commentary of the desire of, of presented in the other one and of the man presented in the other one. I mean, just the double meaning of the name Cyrus just is, it torments me. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like that the, the pinnacle of Cyrus dumb, right? Is either conquering or ruling. Mm-hmm. right um and and we see kind of like i don't know would we call them mini cyruses uh along the way here along this kind of expedition 
whenever he bumps into other kings, right? And it's either he's fighting them, uh, you know, Xenophon and the Greeks are either fighting them or they're sitting down and uh, accepting offerings and gifts and dancing and armor and, you know, doing diplomatic kind of stuff. But it's constantly that it's either fighting or diplomacy, you know, and it's not the contemplative life that Xenophon ends up doing in Sparta after he's exiled. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if, you know, there's something going on here in terms of an ascent for Xenophon, which is realizing that he wants to do neither the diplomatic or the warrior and just wants to hang out at his temple and write. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do, I do think there might be a way to flesh out that direction you're pointing to, Brian, um, and it might be a way to refute or at least um, rule out one of the possibilities that I was thinking of. If we could find a way of saying that the problems that Xenophon is encountering now that dissuade him from uh, wanting to be the monarch of the Greeks at this point um, are not accidental, they're not just that things happen to turn out badly and the timing was bad, that they're essential problems to every political community. Um, and one of the things that um, leaps out at me is it looks like at this point, the Greeks are divided into a faction that wants to acquire and a faction that wants to um, engage in commerce. Uh, so maybe maybe the way to say it is not uh, is there are two kinds of acquisitions, seizing and commerce. And it turns out that these factions um, uh, manifest themselves as the Arcadians and the Achaeans, right? They're the raiders. And then the two factions, one under Chirosophus and one under Xenophon of um, the, the traders, the ones who want to acquire through economic means. Now, if that division is essential to every city, that distinction between human beings is essential to every city, then anytime a city says we want one ruler uh, because it'll give us more energy in acquiring, uh, it sounds like maybe one faction is talking and the other one is silent. Uh, or somebody with the right ears might hear and, and, and say, no, that's not what they actually want. So is that our sense that what we're seeing here isn't a problem with the Greeks um, because they've been beaten down and they've had all these bad experiences marching out of Persia, but this is a problem with all political organizations that a leader has to come to terms with. Yeah. I mean, I, yes. I, as I was, as I was reading this, um, there's, there's a lovely book I think I've mentioned on the pod before by E.O. Wilson called A Social Conquest of Earth. And he has this wonderful mm -hmm. quote, which is human beings are serial cooperators. And so I think what's missing in this kind of monarchy system that the Achaeans and the Arcadians decide to do and separate from the other parts of the army is there's no way to serially cooperate or it's, it's, not, it's not part of the system. A system based on commerce um, allows for serial cooperation, right? It allows for trading of alliances and allegiances, and that's just part of what happens. But in an authoritarian system and a monarchy, you know, the monarch, the single ruler, um, you can't trade alliances. You can't serially cooperate. Everything is fixed into place. And 
you can't manage factionalism as well. Whereas even in the kind of rudimentary democracy that they had prior to uh, electing these monarchs, um, you know, electing Chirisophus for seven days, um, you had some amount of, you know, horse swapping that goes on in a, you know, just a simple 10 man democracy that can alleviate some of the pain of factionalism um, and, you know, allows for allegiances and alliances to shift a little bit and for trading to go on within that in terms of even just political power. But now they've established this one ruler and it falls apart in seven days. So, I mean, I, I do, I do like the, the kind of direction um, this is going. And, and, and I, I agree with um, both of you guys, though. I, th I think that what you're saying is that, you know, Xenophon's motivation is still a little bit of a mystery, you know? Um, and the only, the only thing that I can kind of point to is, you know, something along the lines of, you know, when, when being humane and self-interest kind of run in parallel with each other, right? So it doesn't seem like, and I, I could be, you know, overly um, empathizing with Xenophon a little bit, but it doesn't seem like Xenophon is ever really out to get anybody or out to acquire anything, right? It's just, he just mainly wants to kind of approach this from a utilitarian point of view, which is like, what's the maximum benefit for the most people? Um, whereas, you know, other leaders that we've come across in the book are looking out for, you know, what, what can they get? Um, and Xenophon seems tempted by that. Right. But, you know, in this chapter, especially ultimately says like, no, I don't want to be in charge. I don't want to be, I mean, is he saying like that maybe by taking charge, he might be tempted to become this acquisitive person that he might by being, you know, just being that person put in charge might be tempted into saying, okay, what can I do for me? I don't, I don't know that that um, is a worry for him because I think he sees the um, structural difficulty, if I can put it that way, in the acquisitiveness of this subset of the army. Um, they don't do what they say they want to do. They don't even succeed in doing what they want to do and won't say, right? When they leave on their raiding party, uh, they do it so stupidly that uh, 500 some odd of them are killed, right? They're raiding the Thessalians whose uh, territory, um, no, the Thracians were still one tribe over. Yeah, the, the Thracians and, and uh, you know, they are, they're massacred and only Xenophon's coming to their rescue really is able to get them out of, um, hot water. So there's something about their desire to acquire that is not adequately informed by nece the necessities of the situation um, and the way human beings behave. Xenophon, uh, I think, you know, he might have a very uh, active desire to acquire, but he's uh, also aware of the constraints on it. Um, and it might be that he just sees that, oh yeah, I, I could get the name of ruler but I'll never get uh, enough human support. I'll get nothing but envy from everybody around me. Um, and it will just mean a, a tireless, uh, ceaseless struggle until I die to keep one step ahead of the people who are coming from, for me. Yeah. Um, and that's what it means to be monarch. And you don't get a lot of writing done <laughs> if, <laughs> if, if you're always looking over your shoulder, right? You can't bend over your books at all, not even for a second. Yeah. 
I think that's right. And this comes out, Jeff. I mean, you know, there's this scene uh, in book two where the Greeks begin to want to take from other Greeks. Mm. And so the Heracleots, uh, Xenophon and Kairosophus are, are named ambassadors. And they, and I know this is obscure, Jeff, but you'll see why it plugs in. Um, They say, uh, they say, uh, well, it says here, it seemed to both of them that they should um, not compel a friendly Greek city to give what they would not give willingly and of their own accord. So Xenophon sees the desire to acquire is ending up in demanding things from friends. This is exactly what happens to Cyrus at the end of the education of Cyrus, that there's nothing else to acquire. And he ends up in a position having to take from Persians, having to Mm. take from friends Mm -hmm. to give. And this like totally makes the empire this horribly draconian place where at any given moment, Cyrus will take everything from you. And so it's just this can't the desire to acquire will inevitably end up in the need to take from friends if, if, if presuming enough acquisition and campaigning has gone on. And that's where they're at. They're getting back to Greece and these guys are kind of hungry. And so it's just, it just strikes me that what you say about Xenophon knowing how this is going to end up, the envy, the life that this, you know, portends for him, the necessity to satisfy these appetites, to take from people who are, are Greek, that's a that's that's a no no. And Cyrus, like that, was never on Cyrus the the old the Cyrus from the education of Cyrus. That was just not on his radar. Yeah, it's just nowhere on his radar. <laughs> so, um, this I think this is important to point out. There was another thing I wanted to ask you guys about involving Xenophon. I know we're kind of intense on the Xenophon the man part of the mm-hmm. chapters, but just one more thing. There's this string of places where the sacrifices are not favorable to the things that they want to do. And so it's just, and you're so frustrated. They weren't popish. And the guys are starting to think, is he making this up? Is this, is he making it up? And so he's like, no, you come and look, look at the entrails. They're just, it's just not, uh, it's not, it doesn't look good. And then sort of necessity calls on page 192. This is chapter four, parenthetical 25. Um, They really need to get a move on. And uh, parenthetical 25, after this, one of those who fled reported it all to the camp, the, the kind of disaster that's happening. And Xenophon, since the sacrifices had not been propitious for that day, took an ox from beneath a wagon yoke, for there were no other sacrificial victims, slaughtered it, and went in aid, as did all the others up to 30 years of age. What's not said there is what the sacrifices said, because they had been negative every single time, and they'd been so negative that they killed every animal in the camp to try to get a good one. And there weren't any good ones. And so I'm just, I'm interested here at the apparent revelation of Xenophon that there were moments of necessity when it's at least conceivable that he was willing to to go against the sacrifices or something of that nature. And I don't know what that says about him, um, you know, his piety, his leadership, the connection to the philosophic life, but I was really floored by this. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you have any thoughts on or what what it might mean. I have a kind of guess about this. It's true that um, the sacrificing that happens in this book is more striking than it's been for uh, a number of books, at least. Uh, I can't quite recall. Maybe book three, right? When the whole question of uh, should Xenophon go uh, to Persia to see Cyrus in the first place comes up, right? Consult the Oracle. But uh, not since then, I'll just uh, hazard a, a claim. Not since then has there been so much attention to the importance of of sacrifices. And um, so here's, here's my thought. Um, 
that the sacrifices are for people other than Xenophon, what the reasons for not pursuing acquisition in an unbounded or self-destructive way are for Xenophon. And so that's why he is so um, strangely insistent on them getting good sacrifices, even when uh, necessities are threatening the Greeks so much. They're on this isthmus that they, they uh, I guess it's a, a peninsula that is uh, highly defensible, but has very little resources. And so they have to go out and forage if they're going to be able to support themselves. But I think, I think he's, he's kind of saying to himself, um, people will not behave well. Uh, they won't be well motivated to fight, but they also won't temper their fighting appropriately unless they think the gods are watching them and unless they think they owe their successes to the gods. And so he's very interested in reestablishing this sense among the Greeks that he himself does not necessarily share um, for reasons that are not uh, uh, because he believes in the divine. Um, but yeah, so I think here Xenophon uh, is willing to hold a sacrifice and maybe just have it be inferred by the Greeks that it supported their, their sortie. The sortie has to happen. Um, but he's not willing to openly show that uh, he's willing to do it without a sacrifice. If that's the case, though, I mean, then that, which I agree with you, then it, it makes the... Um, kind of idea that all these sacrifices are fake a little bit more pointed mm. right it's it's less um you know we we kind of take away the veil of pretending that these you know are actually informing xenophon versus like well i gotta go kill something real quick yep and say good let's go do it mm -hmm. um mm. it puts a finer point on that um it does, although isn't it a kind of spectrum in the sense that if, if they were just fake, then presumably Xenophon, you know, would only need one, right? Uh, oh, we need to do this. Let's have one sacrifice. Guess what? It was fine. Off we go. But there is this long series. I think he wants them to play out in an unfake way if possible. Um, and it's only under the pressure of repeated negative sacrifices, which might just indicate that the soothsayers are not feeling up to it or the army's not feeling up to it. Um, that he finally has to um, really put his thumb on the scale. Um, so yeah, it's, it's fake. Uh, where the rubber meets the road, the sacrifices are fake, but we want them to be as real as possible because they have real effects, it looks like. Yeah, I like what you say there. And I think there's a lot of evidence for that in the book. There's another place, um, Jeff, that, that, that reminds me of what you say. There's a point where they get some more sacrificial victims and he sacrifices the first one and he only says how the first one is going. Mm. So he'll say the first victim, it was good, but then you don't hear about everything else. I think this is in chapter five. And then he says, well, the sacrifices are now coming to an end. And then they have to go into this big battle. And what he does is he sends out a watchword and the watchword is Zeus savior, Heracles leader. And this would be another, this, the reason I mentioned this is this is evidence of what you say that he wants on certain occasions for the gods to be behind them regardless of what the sacrifices says. So he remains silent about the way all the sacrifices went. He reports the good one, and then he sends out a watchword of God's of divine support, you see at that moment. And so I think you're right that he's, he's, up, he's, you know, he's manipulating something or he's doing something somehow to uh, encourage them and read them and read the situation. I, I wonder, Brian, I love, uh, sorry, I interrupted you and I, yeah, so go ahead. Um, 
you know, we're, we're six books in now and I'm wondering, has Xenophon changed since we've seen him in book one and now? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. It's hard for me. Um, it's hard not to think. So my instinct would be to answer yes. These are experiences worth writing about that he's had. Um, and so they, they must have changed him. Those are the kinds of experiences worth writing about, the ones that change you and teach you something. But what did he not know that he knows now? If, if we're going to say he changed, then let's put our finger on um, what he knows now that he didn't know. Well, he knows how things are going to turn out. He probably had certain dreams or expectations or hopes from what the association with Cyrus could teach him. And maybe that association didn't last as long as he expected it to. Um, it's not obvious to me, by the way, that his interest in Cyrus required Cyrus's success, but it probably um, would come to an end with Cyrus's death, if I can put it that way. <laughs> He's interested in seeing the living Cyrus. So, you know, um, yeah, can we put our finger on something that we think he didn't know and that he knows now? Um, that, that seems hard to me. Wouldn't he know something additional about the desirability of the life of the, of the leader? I mean, it, it, you know, I think back to what he asked the Oracle, how could he make this journey nobly, not should I go? And I think mm -hmm. back to Socrates being like, what are you doing, man? Mm -hmm. And I wonder if he didn't, if he wasn't tantalized by, tempted by this journey uh, and what he might become or be, or, or and we, we talked about at the beginning, well, he wants to get close to Cyrus to see somebody in action who has the potential to become, to live the political life in its fullest manifestation. And I suspect little did he know that he would be that man, <laughs> you know, you are that man. And, um, and now that he's there, I mean, if, if what we said today is true, he's seen the drawbacks or he senses better the drawbacks. And of course, Socrates, I mean, I, I don't know what goes on in these conversations with these profound men at the, in ancient Greece, but surely Xenophon had heard from Socrates or Plato or somebody that the political life is not all it's cracked up to be. And I, mm -hmm. I wonder if he believed them. I wonder if he believed them. And now I wonder if he hasn't put a, a, a practical, maybe he's the kind of man, I certainly feel this way. I, need, I don't want to hear it in theory, like I need it in <laughs> practice. Yeah. And now the rubber has met the road and he, and it's, and it all makes sense in a certain way. And so I wonder if he has not grown, at least in that respect, that he, he sees something unattractive about a life that he initially was at least tempted by, but had, you know, uh, had skepticism about its ultimate attractiveness. And now maybe there's a bit of, um, uh, he sees something uh, more truly, more concretely about that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I do think it's probably characteristic of a healthy soul when they're told, oh, you can't do this, uh, to think, well, you, you couldn't do it, <laughs> right? In other words, to think that what, what is presented as a necessary or essential obstacle or difficulty might really just be an artifact of the supposed inferiority or weakness of the person who's giving you the advice, right? So, you know, to, to find yourself in this circumstance and trying it out and then to experience the necessity that you've only been told about in some abstract way, that, that might be very um, educational. 
without then you being able to say, oh yeah, now I know something I didn't know before. You knew it in, in one sense, in the kind of quotation mark sense, and now you know it, no scare quotes whatsoever. Yeah, the, the thing that comes to mind for me, I, I, I like all, everything you guys just said, um, is especially when he talks about the trading ships that come in to, to do business with um, the Greeks at certain point in this in this book, is it seems like that seals it for me that another student of Socrates, Alcibiades, that Xenophon is not an Alcibiades. Hmm that he's not going to just go, oh, I'm in trouble. Uh, and if we remember from last book, all the generals are keeping hold of all the ransom from the captives. So, you know, you have these trading ships coming in and there's nothing stopping Xenophon from just hopping on one of these ships and paying his way back to Greece. But he, he can't do that. He can't slip away like Alcibiades does um, and try this somewhere else. He's, he's committed to to getting this done, to, to returning the Greeks to Greece. And so I, I yeah, I just, I just kind of struck me of, you know, I, I recently did a seminar on um, Herodotus and um, Thucydides and just a lot of Alcibiades stuff going on. And it's like, oh, this is, this is not Alcibiades. This is a guy that's going to just, you know, stick to some kind of principle um, and not not try to rule, not um, politicize, not use political leverage to rule, and not use you know wealth or connections for his own good, but is going to try to, I don't know, keep keep his tribe safe or something mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. And in fact, you remind me of a passage that's very interesting. It's in um, Book Six, Chapter Two. Um, parenthetical 15, which is on page 185 of the Ambler that we're working from. And it's precisely the thing you describe. This is where the army has been split into three um, by the um, uh, different interests in, uh, in um, you know, finding plunder or not finding plunder. So Chirosophus is at the head of one faction and uh, there are some leaders at the head of the Arcadians and the Achaeans. They're about to get into trouble. And the question is, who's going to lead the remainder? Um, and the book says, free of the army, Xenophon tried for a while to sail away. <laughs> when, when he sacrificed to Heracles, the leader, and took common counsel, and whether it was more advisable and better for him to march with those of the soldiers who remained, or to be free of them all, the gods signaled by the sacrifices to march together with them. So it, it crossed Xenophon's mind. <laughs> I can, I can make this all go away, right? Um, which, which I think is probably a false hope, by the way, because wherever that ship deposits him, he's still Xenophon who left to go and be with Cyrus, uh, the enemy of the Athenians. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's not just escaping from your problems is not a possibility, but it really, <laughs> it occurred to him here. I mean, this is, for all you listeners, this is a perfect example of Xenophontic humor. This is hilarious. If you think about that thought at this moment from this man, it's just, it makes me laugh out loud and cry, but it's the most subtle thing that, you know, you would have to really sort of have a certain taste to see. So anyway, you can read all of Xenophon's books and they're just roll on the floor laughing uh, with lines like that. Uh, well, I think we're at our time and that's probably a good place to wrap up. So 
Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Shiloh. Uh, another yeah, thank book you guys. Of the Anabasis uh, complete. Uh, we'll be back in uh, two weeks with book seven. Uh, you can follow us on all the socials at the Combat and Classics. We're all over the place. Um, so thanks, fellas. And, and listener, feel free to get in touch to combatandclassics at gmail.com is our email. If you got a question or just want to throw a comment, you can also rate us on iTunes. We appreciate uh, all your reviews uh, and all your support. So thanks, fellas. And we'll see you next time. Take care, gentlemen.